Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Okay, hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Scott Stevenson. Scott is the CEO of Verisk Analytics, a $28 billion market cap uh, data analytics company. Scott joined Verisk from BCG in 2001 and was promoted to CEO in 2013. And since then, Verisk has doubled its annual revenue to almost $3 billion. Well, Scott, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you, Orrin. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, now, now, okay, Verisk was originally called the Insurance Services Office, or ISO, um, and it was founded as a nonprofit, right, in 1971 to serve kind of a consortium of, of uh, 100 or so or uh, various insurance companies, right? Well, why, why was it originally structured as kind of a nonprofit? Right. So it actually, the uh, it, it was about 250 to 300 uh, insurance companies that were a part of putting the organization together. Just a quick bit of context, which will which will help uh, kind of uh, clarify how we got to where we got to, but also uh, make an important point about data, which is that one of the things that can stimulate data to flow is in fact regulation, and that yep. is the and that is the point of origin for our company. So even prior to 1971. The way that the insurance industry worked in the United States and still does today is that regulation occurs at the state level. And each regulator says to the insurance companies being regulated, I want you to give me some very specific, fairly granular operating data. I want you to make it available to me. That's my requirement. Yeah. They say, they say two additional things around that. One is they, they say to the insurers, um, I don't want you to give the data to me directly. I'm going to name someone who stands between you and me. So an intermediary. An intermediary. Data easy for me to consume, et cetera. Exactly. So cause the report from company A in form to be the same as company B. That's the first. And the second is some data cleansing and assurance, some assurance that the data are accurate. So that's the first thing the regulator says. Um, don't give it to me directly. I will name somebody in the middle. And the second thing they say is, um, you insurance company have to pay for this thing that's in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I'm re- I'm requiring it of you, but you. And I'm also telling you, you have to pay for it. So okay, so that's so, and that's been true for a very long time. Yeah. In the insurance industry, so the insurers were paying for this activity. It's called you know stat agency stat reporting. They were paying for it forever. In 1971, these 200, I think it was around 280 actually was the the precise number. Uh, These 280 insurance companies said, hey, you know what? We're paying for this. Can't we do it more efficiently if we take each of these entities, which are at work in these individual states and pull them together into one national organization? So there was like a California organization, a Delaware organization, a Florida organization. Precisely. Precisely. Okay, got it. Okay, so there's somewhat efficient, and there's probably a lot of overlap between them, even though they have somewhat different requirements. No, no, you're you're actually right on both counts. So the theory of the case was, well, rather than doing it 50 times, what if we just consolidated and and you know, kind of the guts of the data aggregation, the data cleansing, what if we just did that once? Wouldn't that be more efficient? 
and and indeed that has proven to be the case. And I, and in some ways, so ISO is like a big ETL system in a way in, uh, when it started, it, it, or it, when it got when it got started, right? Yeah. And then and then yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. And then and then the other part of it is um, that that the analysis is going to uh, uh, ultimately wh why are these data being put forward? The regulators want to make sure that the insurers are solvent. And they also want to make sure that the public interest is being served. And so a lot of the data is, is kind of at the level of what are you charging for this individual policy in this place for this kind of insurance coverage? And then what were your actual loss experiences against that same premium? So it's kind of get, you know, it's pretty intrusive. It gets, it gets to that level. The observation or the theory of the case was, okay, well, so I'm trying to analyze the dynamics of profit and loss of personal automobile insurance in Nebraska. Well, does, isn't it probably the case that the, you know, the, 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 the independent variables, the, the drivers of, of the outcome, the causal factors, isn't it likely that it's kind of the same in Kansas as it is in Nebraska and maybe even Missouri as yeah. Nebraska and and also, if that, it's the, if it's the same company that 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 happens to be registered in those three states, both. then you kind of want to know they're solvent across all three, right? Because if they go if they go bankrupt one, it's going to mess you up in the other ones, right? right? Right. But it's and it's also the case that any one company's underwriting methods are probably consistent across right. states. Yeah. And so and so the the gain the feeling was also that there would be gain analytically because. The, you know, like you should start out understanding the dynamics of personal automobile insurance or homeowners insurance or, you know, small business uh, uh, general liability insurance. And then you can find differences by locale as they apply. And it isn't that analytically efficient. And that also has proven to be the case. And so 1971, the insurer said, let's not do it in all these separate places. Let's do it in one place. That was when the seed and the crystal, which is Veris, when, when, was when all this data starts coming together for insurance companies, like it seems like it would solve a lot of problems. Like if you can imagine back in the day with fraud, you know, you you may have um, someone submitting like a fraudster submitting a similar claim to six different insurance companies. And, you know, if you're if you have a central place that's understanding the claims, it would be able to it would be able to see that the these claims look similar from the same person and it would be able to right. flag it somehow. Right. And so right. it seems like there's all of these really great downstream effects when you have these like in some ways this kind of cooperative of insurance companies. Um, um, it, it, did that start to happen well, pretty yeah, quickly? Uh, no. Okay. And, 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 and you're, you're, you know, the, I, the pattern of thinking is the right pattern, but you have to add one other thing in here. And that is the data that, that we make use of. Uh, and this, this is an important thing for anybody that's, you know, a, a, a data oriented person as you are and I am, and anybody that wants to build a business, you know, around it, uh, the data that we use are permissioned. And so the permissions uh, tend to be specific about the use case that is at work. And so the, these data sets that I was just describing were specifically for the purpose of understanding underwriting practices. Uh, are they in the public interest and the solvency of the company? Okay, so you, you, there's a limit to how you could use them and what you could use them for. So, and, okay. so no, exactly right. Right. So, however, 
um, observations about the pattern of claims uh, is a very useful thing to look at in the insurance industry because uh, one of the one of the uh, besetting issues in the insurance industry is uh, fraud. So, and this data set, the granularity on what is going on inside of the claims is not very great because you, it doesn't need to be highly granular to serve the purpose for which that data set was put together. Yeah. So we went and built a second data set only for the purpose of trying to root out fraud in the claims flows. And, and I'll add one other thing, which is you, you have to pay a lot of attention if you're dealing with um, data which crosses over into consumer space. You have to pay a lot of attention to things like the Fair Credit Reporting Act, yep. which carries with it, as you know, a requirement that you be able to respond to anyone whose data is in your data set if they want to investigate, well, what are you saying about me? You yeah. know, which by, and that's good public policy. I absolutely, totally, right? But that first data set that I was just describing, the one that is kind of statistical by yeah, yeah, uh, line yeah. of insurance, is not FC. It does not need to be FCRA. Right, okay, compliant. so then it's so a much more complex. To, you, okay, you want to you want to think about segmenting your data sets according to the use case, permission, but also governing regulation as it relates to data privacy or your responsibilities as somebody who who aggregates data. And so at the intersection of all those considerations, you can end up building two data sets that are 95% overlapping, but you want to do it twice yep. because of these differences. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, like when you think about the history of Varus, like it does remind me, it kind of rhymes a lot with the history of Visa. You know, like Veris, Visa was also kind of originally was like a not-for-profit. It was owned by the member banks. It was, um, but wh where does the analogy break down between Visa and Veris, and where does it where does it hold? Well, I think mostly it holds it, in almost every way. I would actually say it's an apt comparison. Obviously, there's Visa, there's Veris. Are there other types of you know analogies? Like if we look through history and stuff like that. Well, uh, <laughs> it's a really good question. Um, I, I, I have spent the last 20 years searching for proprietary content, I, and, and vertically oriented proprietary content. Yep. So content, which is, is very powerful in explaining what's going on in some specific domain, some specific industry vertical. The logic of our company is vertical. We serve in the insurance industry, in the banking industry, in the energy industry. Uh, and the data sets are very different. Uh, and, um, and, and in most cases, the most proprietary data that we've got is made available to us by our customers who then turn around and use yep. the software and the analytics that we put together around all of it to make it valuable for them. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the basic backdrop. There are some industries, but not a lot of them, that have uh, a uh, um, there there is at work within the industry a degree of data sharing among the participants in the industry. So the example you've already you've already pointed out the example that is the most prominent one that everybody is familiar with, and that would be in the in the world of um, uh, uh, credit cards. Yeah. Um, you know, there are um, there are the two networks, the two primary networks, Visa uh, and MasterCard. They're they're implicitly 
data consortia in that the, yep. the banks that work with them agree that, that those two organizations will do some analytics. And then you've also got uh, the credit bureaus. Right. And now, now you, on the one hand, you could say that is contributory in that you know, the, um, the providers of, of consumer credit solutions are making the data available to the three bureaus. But um, I, I don't think it's very much of a stretch to say that we as consumers get so much speed and reach in terms of our own transactions because you have these methods in the background so that we can show up and you know, there's a there's a FICO right. score. I mean, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing how fast you can get credit today. You know, 50 years ago, getting credit was was took it, it took forever. And in many countries, it doesn't have this kind of experience, TransUnion, Equifax world. Um, getting credit is you know the only way to get credit is to know someone at a bank or you know someone although, to judge your I character will, or something. You know? yeah, although I will say, almost every country in the world um, has acknowledged the value of what we're talking about here, and so. You know, in some cases, you actually have governments that sponsor something, you know, along these lines. So it, it definitely uh, it has pushed its way out. It's it's it, they may not be as developed as what we've got here in the United States. But, you know, a lot of countries basically say, yeah, I want to be a part of this very, you know, this very uh, high, high velocity, high reach, um, you know, facilitation of, of um, transactions. There are a couple of other industries that have a degree of data contribution on the part of uh, the, the players, but there is, I've gone looking. I mean, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time looking. There is well, no- let's, 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 let's dive in because I, I, I think this idea of these, like whether the, you know, some people call them data co-ops. Some, I, I think you, you use the word contributory data models um, right. for, um, for, you know, and, and these are really, really powerful, um, economically powerful things. Um, and, but they're, 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 they're a little bit different. Like, I don't know that most people study them in business school or something, even though they, they are so, so powerful. So I think it's worth like maybe diving in a bit. Um, they're also hard. They're also hard to achieve. And that's why, that's why I want to get that's your, why there's, well, that's yeah. why there's not a list of 30 industries that have big examples the same way that Verisk stands as a big example in the three industry. In other words, you know, I've gone looking for the other for the other yeah. industries, and there is no industry vertical on the globe which is as comfortable with and as developed with respect to data contribution, the consortium data model, as the United States property and casualty insurance industry. There is no interesting vertical in a locale which is more developed, more evolved in this way than the United States property and casualty insurance industry. It is substantially now, sometimes more these contribute sometimes these contributory data models are the product but sometimes they could be like a piece of product like if you think of like gmail like everyone's contributing um spam signals into gmail and that makes the spam filter much much better so it's a contributory data model that is obviously maybe that the reason you use gmail isn't because you want a good spam filter that's like a nice feature um, you, you, there's lots of other reasons why you use it, but that feature is really important and it, it is solved by that contributory. And, and then they're doing a bunch of other things with like anti-phishing and, and other types of things that make the experience much better because they have all these users. Um, and in some ways, like if you think of like Facebook, Facebook is really just a data co-op. 
um, it only works because everyone else is using it. And then you could start or LinkedIn in some ways as a data co-op, right? It, it benefits because everyone else is using it. So on the B2C side, it does seem like there's a ton of different things and um, obviously very hard to get going on the B2B much less so maybe because on the B2B, it's just like a lot harder to get it moving or get it going. You, well, you know, I, I would actually characterize that one in both directions. So you're, you're absolutely right that in, um, in consumer world, um, our demonstrated uh, uh, behavior is that we really value access. I'm saying as individuals, we value yeah. access to whatever it is. Um, and we've demonstrated over and over again that we're, we're essentially willing to trade off the privacy of our data for whatever we get for that, whether it's I'm in the network, uh, I am, you know, or it's simply being in the network or some of the, uh, you know, the features that I can access because, you know, I'm in there. But we have shown a propensity to say, yes, I lean into that. For a business, it's a much more, and, and I, you know, I, I don't know how, I don't think people think deeply about it, you know, how much, you know, when you're, when you're essentially giving permission uh, in some digital environment, I mean, how closely are any of us reading the fine print and, yeah. you know, how much are we paying attention to opt-in versus Well, there is, there's always, there is some sort of implicit trait, like in ways you're giving your information about whether you're in traffic to get the collective information back of, you know, and, and right. to help you route and stuff like that. Um, right. And you, know, you can imagine all these different scenarios where um, I want to know if I'm getting overcharged for my software subscriptions or something like that. And you can imagine a collective thing where every company offs in their um, their general ledger into some you know common system, and then it comes back and it says, "Are you getting overcharged or undercharged?" Or you know, there could be all these different ways of, or you know, if I'm uh, getting on new vendor and uh, uh, or a new a new customer. And they're going to pay me and they say they're going to pay me in 60 days. Like, do they pay on time or, you know, so you can imagine these like general ledger co-ops happening and th th there could be all these different types of things that don't exist today that could potentially happen if uh, companies were willing to, to, to off their data and get some sort of trade back for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so then to kind of continue on with where you had us there, the, the, the fundamental basic point is that, companies are not like your 13 year old your yeah. 13 year old finds some shiny object out there in in digital world and says oh i'd like to have that and thinks almost nothing about you know whatever monitoring tracking signals are being derived from their own you know journey yeah in maybe the, the 13 the, year old thinks more about it than the 50 year old well uh, let's hope so <laughs> but but uh, but uh, companies are not like that. Companies have been trained, I would say, particularly over the last ten plus years, to know that data is an asset. Yes, you know they that every company is at some stage of a digital journey, and why are they on a digital journey? Well, partly for efficiency, but partly also for the precision of decision making that can come from having great data sets, which are well understood. So now, you know, all general managers, you know, commercial people, not just techni technically minded people, everybody knows, okay, data is an asset. And so um, it's going to be a longer and definitely deeper conversation with a business 
to say, would you know, here's what I would be able to do if you and your, you know, peer companies made your data available. Here's what I here's what I can do. Are you interested in doing that? That's going to be a considered decision on their part. Um, and th- and that's the fundamental difference. And so yeah, they're creating, reading the fine print and they're they're, you know, okay. I, you know, show me your technical environment, show me that you're going to keep the data uh, secure, sign a contract which guarantees my data will not end up in the hands of my competitors, a lot of stuff like that, you know, that, and that's the difference. And that's why it's much more deliberate getting uh, the contributory data model put together where businesses are the ones that are contributing the data. Now, these companies that have some sort of contributory data model or co-op, like they, in some ways they essentially become like a common good, right? Across the industry, like they serve an industry and, Often, because of that, they get rewarded with some sort of like winner take most status. Uh, but there's a, it's like an interesting relationship they have with this industry because they're they're almost they they have a lot of power, but they're also they also have to maintain their long term longevity within that industry. Uh, and like, how should they be thinking about this kind of like you know they don't they can't just like raise their prices ten x or something even though because they they have to serve that industry in a in a long term capacity. So how do they think about both like the long term and their constraints and how they work within their industry? Yeah, well, I mean, I can I can certainly report uh, uh, for us <clears throat> that um, you know our context is sustainability, first of all, I mean, just in every respect, you know, the sustainable performance of our, of, of our company. And it's, it is deeply in our DNA that we're here for our customers. So yeah. I just start, I start with those two things. It's about the customer and the value they're getting. And we're trying to always render things in a, in a long-term perspective. And then add one other point, And that is that um, with our customers in the, in the, in the verticals that we serve, um, we don't have just one solution. We have many solutions, many different data sets, many different solutions. And so if we were to take any one of those and behave in, in, what, in, a, in a way that our customers would say, you're exploiting me. I mean, you know, like you, you, you really are the exactly. presence, you know, in yeah. this solution, you, you are the center um, inside of our industry in this way. Uh, but man, you're squeezing me on price and, you know, and it's, it seems to be all about you, not about me. Well, you know, first of all, the, the customers could, the first order response from the customers would be, okay, well, on anything that you do where there is someone that's competing with you, like I'm, I'm now going to look at, I'm going to go yep. look at them yep. much more deeply because I just cannot put up with the way that you're behaving over here where Apparently you have a lot of market power, but you're abusing it. So, yes. so they, they have that, you know, that, that particular um, way of responding. But, he, but And then over long periods of time, they could say, you know what? It would be really inconvenient. I don't want to do it, but actually I'm willing to enable a competitor to you. And actually I'm going to go talk to six other leaders in this industry. And basically we're going to sponsor the next data consortium. It's expensive. We don't want to do it. Yep. But you've been you've been so irresponsible that you know we're we're going to consider our options, and that would be one option. And one of the nice things about like like once you get to the position where you truly are serving the industry from a co op perspective is that 
your your cost of acquiring a new customer is is, is extremely tiny uh, because low. they're they so so in some ways you don't have the price if you think of like a typical SaaS company like they have this pressure to always be raising prices because their cost of acquiring because it's super competitive and their cost of acquiring right. customers so high for a company like Verisk um, and you know and, and you know maybe the few others that that fit your costs are so low that you can almost pass on those savings to um, you know the, the you know your sales and marketing savings to the customer. We do we that actually is part of the value proposition is that, um, you know, first of all, no one customer would have anywhere close to the data asset that, you know, that we're making use of. But in addition to that, because we do it for the whole industry, their cost to consume it from us rather than try to do it themselves. And, and, and they, they, and they couldn't do it the same way because they wouldn't have the same data asset, but they could try to derive, excuse me, some of the same things. It would just cost them so much more, you know. I mean, yeah. we're aware of the we're aware of how much we're saving them, and that's that's very that's a very important part of the uh, the value proposition for sure. Now, you, these these kind of co ops they're they're they 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 start to be successful using some sort of like micro industry or like a limited geography, like a country or something. Mm-hmm. And then once these like flywheels start to happen, like how. I, I could see a company just getting like trapped in that niche. And even though it's a super profitable, really great niche or something like that, like how do you then like expand or move or add services? Do you expand within the industry you're serving and add other flywheels? Or do you look for like similar businesses and in other industries that you could use the same technology for? Um, right. to, to Like, how do you think about that strategically? Yeah. So there are three, there are three paths and you mentioned two of them. So just to recap those first. So yeah, a new solution to the same customer. Yeah. So watching their emerging needs and then asking the question, well, okay, um, are there, are there uh, data assets which are available to try to sort of speak into that emerging need? And if not, can we try to maybe develop them? You know, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is, and this, and I was on this point earlier, I've gone looking for other businesses which are fundamentally this consortium model, yep. uh, contributory data set, because we know the power of it. And when you see it and it's established, you just know it. You know, you yep. just, there aren't that many of them. That's, that's my report. I'm not saying there are none, but there aren't, there aren't that many of them. And, of course, and, and, and there is power in bringing your next solution to your existing customer because yep. you've already got distribution, et cetera. Yep. But they let me give you, you the, right. But let me give you the third one, which actually among the three that we're talking about is, is uh, either one or two. I mean, it's, it's, it's in many ways, <clears throat> maybe the most important idea. And that is in the world of data analytics, I think of it as a spectrum. And the two ends of the spectrum are defined as on the one hand, content richness, and on the other hand, software intensity. So there's a large, large number of businesses in the world, which actually, it's the SaaS model from the first day. It's basically, yeah. I'm thinking about digital workflow, which may include analytic. And like, that's what I'm doing. You know, that's, that, that's what the team is creating basically from day one. Um, so that's the software intense end of the spectrum aimed at making data kinetic 
and then deriving value from the data. And it could be, yeah. it, it could be that the SaaS solution is more about the flow of data, you know, which includes, you know, uh, cataloging and categorizing and, you know, things like that. But it can also include explicitly analytics for dealing with the data flow. But at the other end of the spectrum, you've got content richness. So like I have specific signals that, that I have access to and I'm, I'm mining those signals for meaning, basically. So the reason that I lay all of that out for you is to make two observations. The first is whichever end of the spectrum you start life at, your second act is always gonna be to move in the other direction. If you start out content rich, you are almost inevitably going to want to become more software intense. Why? Because it's another source of value for your customers. In other words, I have all this data. I've, I've through well, an well, analytic. Why, why is that? Because you, know, you can see a scenario where a company is really good at the content, let's say, maybe not as good as the software or vice versa. Um, and you, know, you can see like in, in some ways, it does take a different DNA to do Experian than FICO. Um, and but a, but, a, but a content rich body does not have to reject software intensity. And you're right, they're different. They, they are different um, capabilities. But but the but the but the attraction, if you can make it work, is very strong because yes. because the part of the part of the sort of recurrence uh, of the the analytic that you're providing, you know, so data boosted through analysis. Now I can say things that I couldn't say before that hopefully have you know a, a precision to them and a predictive quality to them that you can make decisions around. All of that becomes just that much more valuable if I am also providing to my customer this thick software, which is basically the conversion of those signals into their own world, basically. Um, and that in and of itself represents value. And because you understand the content and the signals, you are in a position to do that. You're right. It's a different discipline to create digital workflow than it is to go crazy with the latest analytic method and, and a lot of uh, data engineering methods, you're right. It's a different technical discipline, but it's not that they are incompatible. That's if right. what you're, yeah. if what you you're assigned to the exact same person, the, the well, that's, that's my point. You're yeah. going to the same customer, right. And you're on, and you're solving the same pro, you know, their same issue. You're doing it with content richness, but also um, with, the, with, with the, with the, um, the uh boost how do you know when you're at that point is it just like okay we're we're no longer growing super fast and so now it makes sense to layer another on or now what are we going to do right exactly and and because you're so hungry to um add value to your customer because you're about your customer you're so hungry to add value any way that you can to your customer uh and and that's really what gets you leaning into that and let me add one other point. Let me add one other point because we're here talking about data, right? So yeah. this, I think this is, so if we have, if we have uh, colleagues on the, on, on the call with us, that it's, it's kind of all data analytic for them. Here's a very basic observation from the way the world is actually working. And that is that if you take my, my continuum one more time, yeah. it, it, if you start out with a very strong, dense, rich, content uh, deep 
uh, business model. And, and again, I'm going to argue that in B2B world, that all really works when you're vertically oriented. Yeah. Okay. To go from there to adding the software intensity and just amplifying your solution is a much more reliable way of getting an even bigger business than yes. starting at the software intensity and trying to cross over to content richness. Yeah. And I can explain I can explain why that is, but basically in the in the verticals we serve, there's the fill in the blank tech company. You know, so there's the insure tech and the yeah. fintech and the energy tech. And a lot of what's being referred to there is the software and it's the SaaS. It's a it's a pure yeah. SaaS play, basically. We have to really watch out for confirmation bias when we look at the world of SaaS players. I know we're here talking about DAS, yeah. but just let's talk about SaaS for a moment. You can find successful examples of, of companies that started life as SaaS and, you know, and they got it, they got a long way, you know, because they were facing, because they were the leaders and they were facing a large yeah. addressable market, you know, all good, right? All good. So you could say, well, isn't that so, that's so admirable, you know, the growth rates are so, you know, so high, as opposed to if you're trying to start a contributory database from zero, that takes time. That's yeah. hard work. You yeah. don't, you don't, you don't start to hit the revenue cash register for a while. Cause first you have to assemble enough content to where it's even meaningful. But here's the point on the SAS end of the, uh, of the spectrum for every company that you can point at that is a success, there are a hundred that died, you know, that never, they never made it across. So they wrote some interesting software. They got a couple of users, but you, you yourself are, you know, like it's all the CAC thinking, you know, it's yep. like, yep. how much can I spend to distribute, but I don't yep. really have distribution. You know, the customer base isn't spinning up fast enough. And those customers that I do have, will they trust me with the data? Will they actually permit me to use the data that's flowing through the platform that they gave me? That's very uncertain. You know, you cannot really count on that. On the other hand, yeah, it's, you know, there's a time dependency to building the contributory consortium data set. But once you've achieved scale, the value is probably going to be there as long as you do your work well. And now the crossover to the greater software intensity, it's work. Now, how I, mean, do you, I mean, what if you're giving advice to a small company, I mean, the Verus is now 50 years old, you know, some company that just started a couple of years ago, they might not want to wait 50 years. Like, but, how but, does, well, sorry, go ahead. Start, get your expectations in line. That's the very first thing. Yeah. That's the very first thing. And, and you really have to think about what can you sustain in the build phase. So you've got to scale your cost factors to what you can sustain um, and be, be realistic about that. Um, and, um, and, and, and it will take you time. It just will take you time. No, but it's worth. But but you have to have the courage of your convictions, because it'll take time. But if you get there, right? It's, so get it's get rich slowly and, rather than get rich quickly, right? Or it's I, I actually I use that same phrase, but I say get rich steadily. Steadily, okay, like that. Um, now, one one of the the you know I, I really there's another call. Veris is probably most famous for the insurance contributory data model. But like nine years ago, you bought this other company, Argus, which to me looks really similar to the core Veris business. With one, except, with it is with one difference. Okay, what's well, the big obviously, difference? Sir, yeah. 
serving yeah, serving di- di- different customers. Yeah, obviously, obviously consumer financial data um, and everything. But like, what, what's the big difference that someone from the outside wouldn't see? No regulatory mandate. I got it. so it's a harder one to get going because there isn't a regular a regulator forcing everyone to work together, and so you really and, have to show that core benefit. Right, and um, <clears throat> you know, at the end of the day, if we, I mean, we hope we do a great job, but let's say we weren't doing a great job. Um, the fact of the regulatory man- mandate is one more reason to keep any consortium member leaning in, even if they're thinking, well, I'm not sure about this. I don't know how, but, you know, absent the regulatory mandate, all of the goodness you're, you're providing could slip into the category of nice to have, as opposed to must have. Got it. So, so the, on the Argus business, there's almost a higher bar where you have to make sure that the customers really getting a high ROI, right? You know, always, you're always trying to measure that ROI for that customer because there's nothing to fall back on. If your, if your ROI starts to dip below a certain level, they're just going to leave. Yeah, we, well, we try to be very clear about the ROI with everything we do. We're just manic about trying to understand what's good for our customers. It's just that all else equal, a customer would have somewhat more optionality on whether or not to work with you when there isn't a regulatory mandate. Uh, and that's really, that's, that's really the difference. But yeah, I mean, the data assets over uh, in the financial services, the banking vertical are just remarkable. I mean, they're just amazing. They're granular. They're, you know, the, 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 data, the data asset doesn't exist anywhere else. No, Veris is kind of like in some ways like the original insure tech company, like well before insure tech is cool, but it's it's really not. I mean, for a twenty eight billion like market cap company, it's not well known. I checked like Veris has thirty nine hundred followers on Twitter, so it is a yeah. like. Have you intentionally decided to keep the company on? Obviously, in insurance, everyone knows about it, but have you intentionally decided to keep the company out of the radar broader in a in a broader context? Well, I, the, I guess the way I would put it is that it's so, for us, it's so much about our customers that we're not really trying to, you know, stand up and you know, like, hey, advertise look at, on me. Hey, look, at, look, at, me. Yeah, look, look yeah. at me, look at me. Yeah. I mean, there are some places where actually we do need to raise our profile. We have a great team. Um, our, our hiring managers tell me that when they're out trying to bring, you know, the next super talented person, uh, into like the a company. software developer, they may have never heard of it. And, Cl- and cloud architect, uh, what have you. It. Yeah, that could they, be helpful. They, te- they, yeah. they tell me that the first 15 minutes is just explaining the company. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. And then after people get it, it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm yeah. Like, okay, what, what, what's the job? Like, okay, let's talk about it. So I, I, I get it from there, but definitely, you know, the companies that are in the verticals that we're serving, they, I mean, they all know us and, yeah, you know, yeah, we're, we, yeah. we, and we work with all of them, you know, so. Now what, now for it, what advice would you give like a data company, let's say SafeGraph where I work, what company would, would to, if you were giving us, what advice would you give us to, if we're going to break into the insurance industry, like how do, do we think about the insurance industry different? Is there some like different quirks that we would think about than breaking into some other industry that's out there, retail or financial services broadly, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. No, I would add a couple of things. I mean, they all go kind of the same direction. So, um, you know, you have to think about what's your attachment point. What's your attachment point to the insurance company that you would like to have? What do you mean by attachment point? Yeah. So you can attach in several different ways. 
one way that you can attach is having uh, really uh, very capable, very empowered human beings that are the front end of your business model and send them in, send them in to the companies that you want to work with. So the attachment yeah. point is a human being to a human being. And, and maybe a fair amount of the value add is actually the human, your human being's translation of what you've got into the value proposition for uh, the other company. So that's, yep. that's what, that could be one attack. Like great enterprise then, salesperson or something. or yeah, Right. Yep. And by the way, the, the things I'm going to lay out here, they're not mutually exclusive. Yes. So you kind of want to think about all of them. You know, a second one is back to what I mentioned before. Do you want to build software, which is the attachment point at which you integrate into the customer's own digital platform? So now when you come with all the goodness, which is your data and the signals that it provides as it relates to, you know, so um, be very easy to attach to, you know, like um, serve it up through API and, yep. and through APIs that are sensitive to the workflows on the, you know, on the other side. And, you know, let that be your attachment point or, uh, or actually create, you know, the, the, the software gearbox that the customer also licenses, or maybe you give it away to them, but now you are completely in line. And so now your, that platform that you just gave them is the environment in which they do the work related to the data and the signals that you're giving them. So there's lead time. You have to build that. You have to know it's what they want. You have to know how, how that attaches to the workflows inside of your, your, you know, your, your customers. And you have to think about razors and razor blades. It's like, you know, that maybe that yeah. attachment point, maybe I kind of give it away and then, okay, they start to use it. And then the third one would be to partner. So go find somebody that's already well attached to that so like market. Verisk is already in and we could sell through Verisk in some sort of like way. That. Or, okay. Right. Incl yeah. And including, and in that also, it could be that what you've got is integrated in with what we've got before we even present it to the customer. Yeah, your co-selling. So like, like make 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 that tie. Now, I, I know that we're we're both huge fans of the book Zero to One by Peter Thiel, and in right. some ways, like it could have secretly been written by about Verisk, right? The core central theme is is competition is for losers, right? In the in the book, like how do you what lessons have you gotten from the book, and how have you applied that to 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 running Verisk? Yeah, I, to, to me that, so I think, as you say, it's, I think it's a great book and I'm really glad that, that Peter teases out the distinction between zero to one and one to N yep. because they both actually represent innovation, but in different ways. And we actually need both. You know, yes. I mean, if you were to ask me in the sweep of human history, you know, how much of a difference has been made in the zero to one innovations and how much of a difference has been made in the one to end innovations. I mean, we want both of them, obviously. Absolutely. But, yeah. You know, if you go if you go back to the year zero AD, so 2021 years ago, the people who study these things tell us that there were maybe 150 million human beings on the planet. Yeah. Right. So now in the span of only 2000 years, I mean, and it is only 2000 years, 150 million has become more than 7.5 billion. Yes. And lifespans have gone up from in the 20s on, again, people are modeling, yeah. but that's yeah. kind of, you know, 
to you can reasonably expect to live into your 80s if you live in a you know a developed economy. Yes. I mean, this this is spectacular success for our species. Unreal, unbelievable. And if you were to ask me, and I, this is totally just informal, this is just, you know, my sense of it. I think one to N had a lot to do with it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, kind of going from being able to get three bushels of wheat out of that acre to four, and then four became five, five became six. But at some point, you have enough people that have increased the productivity of growing crops enough that there's actually the whole community now has surplus. And so somebody then can then go and say, huh, you know, this hard stuff, which is metal, like, what can we do with that? You know, now you, you so you create well, the way, yeah, kind of the way, the way I think about it in, in a company is that you've got these two things. One, you've got these series of 1% improvements, which are really important. Like, how do you optimize your sales team? It's an obviously 72, 1% improvements doubles, right? So that, that's a huge thing. Um, and then you've got these step functions that also happen in companies and, and you do need both. You need to, Precisely. You, you can't just have the step function. You can't just have the series of 1% improvements. So they're, they're really important. And you right, organize. Got- and the point is you organize around them differently. You, you literally, you literally, Think differently, and you organize work differently. In and order, maybe even to be different successful. people are better at one versus Pro- the other. Almost, yeah. cer- almost certainly different people as well. Yes. Or two. I, a couple of personal questions before we wrap up. So, I, sure. I want, one of them is: you're really one of the few Fortune 500 CEOs that talk openly about their faith, um, and and you seem to be much more comfortable talking about it now than you were earlier in your career. I, I heard you say that you, you kind of. Um, you once passed up an opportunity to say Jesus was your hero at a BCG event, and it really felt like terrible grief about it. Like, how has that kind of like in your own kind of mind, in your own heart evolved over time? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I did have that defining experience. And, and when you when you have something like that, you just don't you just don't forget it. I mean, I feel like I, you know, betrayed the thing that I was you know, I always said was, you know, my one of uh, my prime commitment. But I had a chance to demonstrate it publicly and I didn't. And so the way that I felt after that is just a is a total cautionary tale to me to just simply state my commitments uh, and, you know, just be prepared for whatever, you know, whatever effect that has in the conversation. My experience has been as I have done that more. I mean, so first of all, you know, the spirit of the cultural age that we're in right now is authenticity and state, you know, kind of you know, state who you are yes. anyway. I mean, I, the culture kind of invites it. I mean, I, the number of people who I didn't ask them, but they just start talking about what they're passionate about. Um, you know, I mean, there's just a lot more of that than there was um, when, you know, when I, when I was a younger person, you know, and. Right. You um, had to conform so, more in the seventies, eighties. It, so, it, so, it sort of felt like you were just kind of thinking a little bit harder about you know, how you presented yourself. And, you know, I, and I'm, I'm just with, with time, I, I've just become extremely comfortable in my own skin. But the other thing that I would say is that, so on top of all of that, so I had a negative motivation. I feel invited by the, the culture around me in many ways to just state, you know, that I'm a Jesus follower and that's, I'm passionate about it. But I'll tell you the third point for me that is out there is it's interesting how frequently it actually, when, when I will sort of do that, when I will state my commitments in that way, it is, it's interesting how frequently that creates room for the other person to do the same thing. In yes. other words, 
you know, folks well, are walking you're the around. CEO. So now I'm a, you know, a manager level person and I've got, I have a belief that, you know, I might be worried is not conforming or, you know, and, and I, I might be more willing to, 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 to be open about my, my feelings. Well, and, I, 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 and I, and I take pains and I have to be thoughtful to not, you, you know, you zero in on people that are in the company that, yeah. you know, I'm a part of, I, I, I'm expressing myself to, you know, people I just meet, you know, it's just uh, in, in any walk of life, but I do have to be careful within the company to make it abundantly clear that like, you don't have to agree with anything I'm saying about my own personal, your right. job here is not contingent upon uh, agreeing or seeing it the same way that I do, you know, express your own commitments. Let's, yeah. you know, that that's, that's, that's what, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the inclusivity agenda that we talk about so much at, at companies should should really be about you know bring your whole self to work and you know you will be embraced by this community be who you are you know yeah. that's inclusivity and you know so one way of kind of inviting inclusivity is to kind of include myself you know to be willing to you have to be a little bit my- more vulnerable um to to do that right okay that makes sense and and, and that is I, I would say that is a big difference in ceos today than it was totally 20 oh. 30 years ago completely. Yeah. You you basically, you basically better engage with your people a lot. You know, you do not sit in the corner office and write memos, you know, interact, interact with your people a lot. Um, And not only that, but when you get in these 10, 15 person meetings and it's, you know, and you're, you're going into deep things that relate to the business, but also who you are. I'd say the other difference with, you know, a few decades ago is you better have some game. You know, like you better, you better actually be a real human being. You yeah. better value the other human beings that you're in the room with. These are good developments, you know, as opposed yeah. to, hey, I'm the boss. So essentially I'm going well, to tell you Also people have choice. They could go work for another company tomorrow, right? These are totally. all, everyone who works at Ferris is a super talented person. So yeah, uh, I mean, for those of you who are a couple decades younger than I am, honestly, when my, when my cadre came through and we were looking for our first jobs, the best job was the one that paid the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. The best job was the one that paid the most. Now, we all know we're supposed to ask, well, what's the purpose of this company? You know, does yeah. it serve some? It, but and am I learning? Is it going to be interesting? You know, these um, are great questions. How are you going to treat mean, me? Yeah. 25 year olds today are much better and more sophisticated consumers of employment opportunities than my generation was. I mean, they really, really are. I right, know one one thing that's also I think a little bit different about you is that you know you're CEO of a huge company, measure three billion revenue, twenty billion market cap. Yet you're insanely good at responding to email. Um, like <laughs> how do you how do you manage all these? I mean, you must have like crazy amounts of things coming out your inbox. Well, I, I would say a couple things. One is, it you know it is it is helpful to anyone. If you kind of know fundamentally what you're about and you and you know fundamentally what matters, I guess I would say, uh, because um, if, if every email uh, that I responded to, and thank you for noticing, by the way, because <laughs> I, I, I take it very seriously. Um, but, um, you know, if you know what you're about, then there's something presented in this email you can sort of go inside, you can think about what you were just presented, but also kind of go inside and, you know, sort of put it up against the things that you know, and the things that you've thought about, and you can respond quicker. Yeah. 
if you know what you're about. So that, so that knowing who you are promotes efficiency of response, I would yes. say. But then the second thing I would say is that, you know, I, 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 you know, I've had a very stable and relatively uninterrupted career, but I did, I did make a big change, I, a big pivot in my career when I left in the, it was essentially a two year period between when I left BCG as a senior partner and when I entered what is now Verisk, it, it had a different name back then, but there was a two year period in there. And I had a sense of the destination. I hadn't identified Verisk or what yeah. it was called back then, but I, I had a general you know, sense. And, and my point here is, I remember in those two years, say so like you've cast yourself off from something and like I was totally platformed to BCG, you know, uh -huh. I, I could call my partner in Kuala Lumpur and ask her, you know, like what's, what's the latest in yeah. Malaysia? Cause I think that's meaningful, you know, for my, for my client over here. So I felt, you know, I was very, and then all of a sudden I felt like this just teeny little, you know, kayak bobbing in the middle of the Pacific ocean. And I can remember so distinctly the feeling back then. Of, so you're trying to, you're trying to generate something. Yeah. You're trying, it's, it's original. You're trying to, you're trying to get it going basically. And so I, you know, so you're reaching out in a lot of directions. I remember what it feel, felt like when I would ping, 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 but I wasn't getting the inbound. Now, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like for every founder entrepreneur, we know. <laughs> does, any, does anybody know or care that, totally. I, you know, I'm out, I'm out here and, you know, and so I just, I just realized in that experience, you know what, one of the ways I can serve other people is to simply respond because it says, you know what, the universe is not indifferent to you. The universe, at least this one little speck of the universe, yeah. you reached out, heard you and came back to you. And I, and I know how it made me feel when people did that, when I was more that kayak bobbing in the middle of the ocean. I know, I know, I know the encouragement it was to me. And so why not, you know, I just want to do that for other people because it's amazing. When, just, when just I was in college in the nineties, I would um, occasionally email Steve jobs. Um, and he would always email me back within like, and you know, he knew I was a college student. I was emailing for my berkeley.edu email address. Like, like he would always email me back within like eight hours or something. You, you maybe were just like one word or something, but it was, it was amazing. Like he was how on top of it it was. And I always remember that. The, the universe answered you. you. You spoke to the universe and the universe answered exactly. you. And it felt good, right? It was, it was existentially affirmative. Well, we can do that for each other. Our last question we asked all of our guests, what would you have told yourself if you went back to, you know, yourself in high school or college, what would you have told yourself to save yourself either like time or money or emotional well-being? How would you, have, what would you have done differently? Um, it's not so much uh, uh, sort of the efficiency of the journey, but it's something that I would say more, I had to learn uh, through experience, which if, 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 if I had been told and I could have believed that probably would have saved me some cycles of anxiety. Um, and uh, so what do I mean by that? You know, today uh, the phrase imposter syndrome gets thrown around yeah, a lot. Yeah. You know, we hear that a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, um, the thing, the thing that I want, I want folks to know, you know, so I've, I, I think it's fair to say that kind of the outcomes in my career are ones that, you know, a lot of people would be happy to have. Yeah. Um, and I feel very, believe me, I feel very fortunate and very privileged to get to do what I do. But 
but my point here is that when I was 24 and when I was 29 and when I was 33 and when I was 38, I had experiences of what people refer are talking about when they refer to imposter syndrome. Another way of saying that is, the, do the people who just gave me this new, bigger responsibility, do they realize that I am, I'm not ready for this job? <laughs> you know, I'm not, my experience base has not prepared me for this job. I mean, I, you know, I have some skills and, you know, I have energy, but like, do they realize like kind of where I am in my journey relative? And so, you know, so I experienced it when I was 24 and I experienced it when I was 29. And yeah, it's kind of anxiety provoking, you know, so like, what am I going to You're like, wow, you know, but you, you have that happen to you enough times and you come to understand, oh, that's just the process. Yeah. Like th th this is not you only can't, is you can't learn if you're not working on something where you don't have a high failure rate. Um, if you're if you're going to be if you're put into a new thing where you have an extremely high likelihood of success, your growth is going to be capped. Exactly. And 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 it is the source of growth, not only for people individually, but actually for the organizations or the teams um, with whom they work. It, it, it actually is the way that everything advances. It's it's the one to end form of growth. Per, there's also a zero to one where like you just, you know, in a moment, you kind of rethink everything. But the one to end is multiple times getting put into situations that are just bigger than you are. Yeah. But you go through it enough times and you, you get to the point where, oh, it's not me. Like that's, this is the process. The, that's what happens. Yeah. This is, this is, in fact, this is the way we want it to happen. But the, the, but the issue is you don't get told that, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily highlighted. And that's why I want to highlight it for maybe some folks that are on our call today, that yeah. are a little bit earlier in the journey. So when you have that experience, don't, it, hopefully it won't have to be for you the way it was for me that it, I had to go through it three or four times before I got, oh, it's not me. It's like, this is the process. This is interesting. It. So if you, can, if you can get it at the first one, then you can just save yourself the mental energy of sort of like, oh man, you know, <laughs> like, like am I just going to keep ending up in places where I start out not feeling capable? Well, well, maybe, but actually you shouldn't resist that. You know, it's live into that. So if somebody had told me that when I was 24, I don't know if I would have believed it or not, but I think it's really true. I love this is great. This is a perfect place to wrap. Thank you, Scott, very much for joining us at World of Das. This has been really great. Thank you so much for, for my for pleasure. Here. Or always good to be with you, Aaron. Thank you. I look forward and may it be not too long until we can again break bread together. Last Absolutely. time we did it, that was such a fun evening. And I, March, I look forward to March that. 2020. It was one of the last few great dinner parties. The, the so. curtain, the curtain, <laughs> the curtain was descending, even as we were finishing dessert. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All guys. right, my friend. We'll see you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph.